Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Good morning. I'm going to try it one more time. Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Good morning. There we go. Welcome to the new expanded sanctuary space. Amen. This is our first Sunday in this room. If you were here seven days ago, there was a wall somewhere about right there. Um, and that was our worship space. And so now uh, we have uh, expanded. This was a vision of ours back in 2019. The Adkins family back there in the Adkins section uh, now have an expanded section just for them. Um, and yeah, Joy's waving and Dalton. Um, and But this was the original vision years ago when we came into this building. And we're so happy and thankful that our Lord has provided it in his timing, in his way and in the manner in which he did. Amen. Amen. So I, I want before we dismiss the children, I just want to take this time publicly to thank all who participated this week in making this happen. Uh, it took all of us at once to do it. And it actually ended up more complete than I expected at this point. I expected us today to still have a little sheetrock to work on, but uh, it got done. Amen. Amen. So there's still some minor tweaks that I know we're working on, like with sound and different things. And even back in the ad, we're going to start. I, should we label that the ad section? OK, so the ad section, we still need to put some carpet down back that way. But, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's still a minor work in progress, just a little bit, but it's still pretty well complete. Amen. Amen. So thank you all for being here. Uh, little ones who need to be dismissed at this time, they may go um, and we will see you guys afterwards. OK. Welcome to all of the guests who are here. We have some visitors with us this morning, so we're glad that you are here. Um, and let me let me first invite you, if you're a guest here, we do have a fellowship meal afterwards, if you did not know. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, we gather at the Lord's table to worship, but then we follow up with a fellowship meal. And so please uh, feel welcome to stay. There's always plenty of food. Um, right, Baptists? There has never been anyone go hungry at a fellowship meal at Sovereign Grace. Now, the pastor has actually come through at the end and picked up scraps uh, that was left because that's all that was left. But know that no one goes hungry. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, please, to the gospel of Matthew chapter 21. As we continue through this wonderful gospel, um, as I'm thinking and praying through the these last chapters, it's probably going to be. We may wrap this up this year. We may not. It may be December. It may be January. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know where we're going to go with it yet. Oh, any final chapters, but we are in chapter 21 this morning, uh, toward the end of this, well, almost to the end, uh, verses 28 through 32. Um, keeping one's word is a virtue. Yes. A promise should always be kept. Yes. But then there's this dilemma of changing one's mind too. Is that a virtue? Some would say yes. Some would say no. Can one change a promise? Can they change their mind and still be virtuous? Can one change a promise or would they be condemned? It's what I think we could ask ourselves this morning. I mean, this week's passage in Matthew 21 verses 28 through 32 it takes us further into the scene, if you remember, with Jesus teaching in the Jerusalem temple during his last week of ministry and life. I mean, during the day and the days after he purged the temple, remember, he purged the temple of all corruption. The chief priests and the elders challenged his authority often. I mean, we, we saw last week one particular session of teaching was actually interrupted by these chief priests. 
as they called upon Jesus to reveal the authority behind his ministry, behind what all he did. Who gives you authority to do this, Jesus? But remember Jesus' response to them. Literally, he tells them that his authority was simply, I am the Son of God. That's really what his answer was. By saying this in verse 27, so they answered Jesus when he he challenged them about John the Baptist. He said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Really, by Jesus refusing to directly answer their question, his answer really was, I am the Son of God. Now Jesus responds when we get to verse 28, segueing from verse 27 to 28, Jesus now responds to the chief priests and the elders by several parables. So this scene continues throughout the rest of chapter 21 and into chapter 22. I want to kind of give you that picture here. Matthew shares these parables both here in 21 and 22. And today we're going to listen to the parable of the two sons. And this parable is unique to Matthew's gospel alone. You will not find this parable in any of the other gospels. Uh, Particularly, John's gospel carries no parables. The only parables we have are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this particular parable today is only found in Matthew's gospel. So if you're able to stand, would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's word? And let's read Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the chief priests and the elders here. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They, being the chief priests, said, The first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And this teaching of your son, Jesus Christ to these hypocritical chief priests is still very relevant and important, more so to us today, I think, than ever, because we have distanced ourselves through time and history and even our complacency of Christian culture in the West. We have distanced ourselves from honest adherence and obedience to your word. And we may fall into the same error that these chief priests find themselves in. And so, God, this morning, I do pray that you would speak to each and every one of us here. I pray, God, that you would reveal to us exactly what your son Jesus is teaching here, that there are two different kinds of people in the kingdom, really, even. Those who listen and obey and those who feign loyalty but then do not. And so, God, I pray this morning that your word would speak true to us. And I pray, God, that all of us, including myself, would hear you speak in your word. Guide us, Father, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. The challenge to Jesus' authority to teach in the temple 
remember here, is met with three parables. Jesus responds to the challenge that came to him with three parables. We're going to see this uh, for the next several weeks. We're going to look through these three parables. One scholar calls these three parables true faith parables. Parables to teach us what is true faith in Jesus Christ. Here we're looking at Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. This is the parable of the two sons. The next one we're going to look at next week, verses 33 through 46. Actually, we're going to look at this one over a series of two weeks. Uh, the, the parable of the tenants, the farmers. There's two different kinds of tenant farmers that Jesus uses in his illustration. And then lastly, in Matthew 22, uh, the, the, the parable of the wedding feast. There are two kinds of guests that come to the wedding feast. So notice the theme here in these three parables over the next several weeks. Jesus will be teaching through these parables primarily to chief, uh, to the chief priests and the elders who challenged him to drive home the point that there are two different kind of responses to me as Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I am the son of God and there are two different kinds of responses. And these three parables unpack all of that. You, you kind of see what we're having to here. I mean, in each of these parables, Jesus makes a strong point to the hypocrites. I mean, these were hypocritical priests and elders. And what he's saying is that there are two kinds of people who listen to Jesus Christ. Those who are humble and eager and those who are arrogant and dismissive. There is no in between. You are either humble and eager to listen at the feet of Jesus Christ or you are arrogant and dismissive. There is no gray area. That's what these are the words of Jesus here. I mean, these three parables could be called the people of God parables as well. I mean, because all three of these parables paint the picture of the responses of the people of God. I mean, these parables all focus on the ones that the Lord calls to him to listen. Traditional church teachings, though, about these parables do tend to focus more on the idea that Jesus is speaking only to Israel here. The dispensationalist hermeneutic sees the warnings of Jesus as directed only to the hypocrites of Israel. And then they separate out the church from this. But I would caution that I think these parables are broader than that. They're not just to the nation of Israel. They're not just to the corrupt priesthood. They are to all of us who listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. And I think that's important for us to see. But I think it better and more accurately to interpret these parables both as a warning to the chief priest. We can't ignore that. Because Jesus does clarify who he's speaking to here in Matthew 22, verses 45 through 46. But I think more broadly, these parables can, and I think they should also be interpreted as stories applied to all of God's people. And if you're here this morning and you claim the name of Jesus Christ and he has called you, you are in that camp. I mean, when we look here at verse 28, let's notice how he, how Jesus responds here. He begins, remember, it's a, there's a segue from verse 27 into 28. In 27, Jesus says, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And, G and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then immediately he says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. What do you think? I mean, this phrase is Jesus' answer to the chief priest who demanded to know by what authority he purged the temple. And they wanted to know by what authority he taught as if he was the high priest himself of the temple. 
Jesus was the one. He said he established himself by purging the temple as I am the high priest. I have all authority to do this. I am purging the corruption out. And so these high, these chief priests come to him and they challenge him. And Jesus says, what do you think? What do you think? He wants these hypocrites to discover the answer to their own question in themselves. Jesus, he's using a method here. He's using a method of teaching in these parables. And by starting out with the question, what do you think? He's now putting the responsibility on these hypocrites to discover the answer themselves in what he's about to say. Jesus's method of teaching here is meant for the student to discover the answer on his own. Teachers in this room, have you ever you've employed this, haven't you? The most effective way for any student to learn anything is for them to discover and think about the answer on their own. And the best teacher will ask questions rather than give answers. That's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, we also know that Jesus spoke in parables primarily to those not in his inner circle. That's what we see in the Gospels, to those who showed that they really opposed the Gospel by their words and their deeds. Jesus used parables primarily to teach those or to speak to those who really did not want to hear him. There are about 40 different parables throughout the Gospels, all recorded again in the synoptics. And again, remember, John's Gospel does not share any of these parables, not one. Jesus told his 12 disciples exactly why he spoke to the religious leaders in parables. We saw this back in Matthew 13. Remember last year when we were in Matthew 13? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. These are the words of Jesus. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He was using parables directly to those who refused to listen. He was using parables directly to those who were so blind in their own arrogance and their own pride that they could not hear and would not hear the gospel spoken plainly and truthfully. That's why Jesus did this. Did this. The, the idea that there is a there's a school of preaching and a school of teaching that has really been I, I, the intent is right, but the intent is but, but the, the outcome is wrong. The intent that we we tell stories from the pulpit because Jesus told stories in the parables. If you stop and remember why Jesus was teaching in parables and you apply that to the church, what does that say about the church? If, I, if a pastor is supposed to stand up and tell you stories like Jesus was telling stories, really what that means is you don't want to hear the gospel. That's why I'm not a storyteller, folks. I'm sorry. I mean, I can tell jokes, but y'all don't laugh at them. That's why we exposit the scriptures. That's why Jesus, when he taught in parables, he was primarily doing that in the setting of those who were maybe curious, but honestly, deep down, they didn't care. And so Jesus taught in parables to them, but he spoke directly to his 12 and to the disciples who were faithful. He didn't teach them in parables. He taught them directly and personally. 
A lot of people don't realize that in the Gospels. But go back to Matthew 13 if you wish to go back and see the words of Jesus himself. Okay? So in Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus furthers his response to these chief priests, remember, who dared to demand anything of Jesus because they were seeing, but they were blind. They were hearing, but they were deaf. And Jesus' reaction to them when they challenged his authority in verses 23 through 27 tells you exactly how Jesus was treating them. They really don't want to hear me. But here come some parables. Let's see if they understand. That's why he starts here in verse 28. What do you think? That's a, if you, I mean, if you write my notes in your Bible, underline that. Jesus' response to hypocrites was, well, what do you think? He's not going to play their game. Jesus begins this with a question. I mean, it, this again is a strategic method of teaching. It's a, and, and think about it. This is a great way for Christians to evangelize. There are many in this church who love to evangelize and you love to study Christian apologetics. Rightly so. Please keep it up. But notice how Jesus deals with people who challenge him. He doesn't give them a direct answer. He asks them a question. What do you think? That might be a simple method. If someone comes to you and asks you about your faith, asks you about Jesus Christ, asks you about the church, a simple question, a simple reply might be, well, what do you think? Put it back on them. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, if someone is sincere about asking you about the faith, and you can discern this, you can tell if someone's sincere, if they're really humble and really seeking information, I think the proper Christian response is with a sympathetic ear and, and honest answers. But you can discern if they're genuine or not. But if one is challenging the faith, you know, some people, sometimes we as Christians get challenged with, well, you tell me about this Jesus, and then there's an attitude in the question. You can pick up on their attitude pretty quickly. If they really, through their attitude and their tone, express a lack of desire to truly know the truth, then just respond to them with the question, well, what do you think? That's what Jesus is doing. This type of question shifts the burden of answering back to the one who asks. Jesus does this in Matthew 21, 28. And here's what he's, he's fulfilling his refusal in verse 27 to neither, to the, not to directly answer them. Remember in 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's not telling them. He's asking them a question. Well, what do you think? I mean, Jesus responds to these chief priests and elders with, with, this is an exercise in deductive reasoning. He begins with a broad premise and leads to a specific conclusion in the, in the parable. I mean, through a series of statements and questions, Jesus leads these arrogant men who challenged him to not only understand who Jesus was, but also who they were. The answer out of this parable is twofold. It's all, it's, it's who Jesus is and his authority, but also who are you as hypocrites? It's a two-way street here. Verses 28 and 31 are really the only two questions that Jesus asks. Remember at the end of verse 28, a man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard and say, uh, today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? So in verse 28, the question, what do you think? In verse 31, which of these two did the will of his father? Two questions. 
What Jesus intended here is that these chief priests will answer their own questions by listening to Jesus's question about authority here. More importantly, I think they're, they're going to answer their own question about their own misguided arrogance and their own misguided authority. Verse 28 and 29, what do you think? A man had two sons and we go through this and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. As I read this, there are a lot of parents in this room thinking, well, that's my kid. Right? Ian, go pick up your room. I will not. (laughs) Stephen in the back, go take out the trash. I will not. No, these are good boys. They'll say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That's what they'll say. Y'all ever been there? Y'all ever had a kid do that? I will not. Parents are going, yep, I got one of them. How do you feel about that kid? (laughs) You want to shake them by the ears. Because what kind of response is that? Disrespectful. But notice here, here in verse 28 and 29, even though in in verse 28, the son, when, when when the father says, son, go and work in the vineyard today, and the son's answer, I will not. But notice what he does. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. Isn't that all a parent ever wants a child to do? Just change your mind and do what I asked. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great and glorious and grand? <laughs> I mean, I think it's obvious, as did the chief priest here in verse 31, that this first son did the right thing. That's what the chief priest say in verse 31. When Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father, the chief priest said, the first one. The one who initially said, I will not go to the vineyard, eventually did. And the chief priest, even as arrogant and prideful as they were, recognized he was the better son. But notice here that the son is guilty of disobedience. In no way in this parable does Jesus exonerate his guilt of rebellion. That's an important point here. Even though he did initially refuse and then changed his mind and obeyed, doesn't mean that the initial refusal is forgotten. Just because we change our mind and then obey after we first rebelled does not whitewash the rebellion. He was still guilty. Jesus in no way in this parable says, well, now he's forgiven of his disobedience. Not at all. But he was the better son by doing, by eventually changing his mind. Yet what is honored here is the repentant heart. I mean, the change of mind did lead to proper obedience and honor to the father who requested that he go to the vineyard. And we have to, I think a way way to understand this is who is this father? Who is this man? Clearly it's the Lord asking you to go work in your vineyard. I will not. Well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'll change my mind. The Lord wants that, but you're still guilty of rebellion. Take care of verse 30. Now here's the second son. And he, the father, went to the other son and said the same, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now, how many of y'all have a child like that? Very obedient. Yes, I'll do it. But then somehow they forget. I had a couple of them. Yeah, I'll do that. And then you come back later. Wait a minute. You told me you take out the trash. Oh, I forgot. Been there, done that? Josiah's up here on the front row squirming. I wasn't talking about you. I'm talking about your other, your brother. I was talking about him. Right? This relates, doesn't it? Jesus' parables relate to us, and that's why we love them so much. But remember who Jesus was teaching this to. 
He's teaching it to hypocrites. He's teaching it to arrogant, prideful chief priests. Jesus uses specific language here in this, in verse 30. The phrase, I go, sir, was a very common Hebrew phrase. When Hebrews wished to offer their services, they would declare, I go, sir, as if they are ready to obey. In other words, it was a, it was a symbol. It was a sign. If, if someone says, I go, sir, that was a covenant. That was a commitment. I will obey whatever you ask. Yet notice the obvious problem here. This son had a willing declaration, I will go. He spoke it, but it didn't mean anything. There's a problem. There seems to be a disconnect. This willing declaration of the second son meant nothing. Just because he said it, doesn't mean he was going to do it. Right? So, the willing declaration of a follower of Christ who intends to not honor this declaration of obedience to Jesus means nothing. Has that, I mean, has that hit home with anybody? Well, I, I, I gave my heart to Jesus when I was eight years old at vacation Bible school. I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I shook the preacher's hand. I told my mama I loved Jesus and she got off my back. I spoke the words. But you do absolutely nothing with it. There's absolutely no obedience that follows. There's absolutely no honoring of the word that you gave. I obey you, Jesus. I ask for your forgiveness, Jesus. I obey you, Jesus. I come to you, repentant Jesus. We can say it all day long. We can say, Jesus, you are my Lord all day long. And if there's absolutely no fruit from it, it means nothing. And Jesus is saying this in this parable. This second son was the obedient son by word. But his actions showed zilch. His actions showed the truth of his attitude and his heart. His will meant nothing. It's not the will of the son in this parable that mattered, though. It was the obedient heart, the submissive will. How many in the church have ever willingly declared, I go, sir, to our Lord and are truly like this second deceitful son? We say that we'll follow Jesus. We depend on the words we speak alone for our status as the good son. But our actions reveal the truth of our will. Our will is not submissive. Our heart is not broken. The father's will is truly not our will at all. And that's why Jesus is telling these chief priests, you've got the words, but your heart is corrupt. You've got the language and you obey the law, but your obedience means nothing because it's not there. To delay before doing our duty as this son did is to delay in performing our promise, fulfilling our word and not to perform that promise shows that one's words are merely hypocrisy. If we make a promise to our Lord, you better follow through. And that first promise that most quote unquote Christians speak is, I love you, Jesus. I will obey you the rest of my life. And then absolutely nothing follows. We have people in this room right now 
who serve the Lord in name only. You serve in this church. And you're loyal and you're obedient. But you've never truly given your heart to the Lord. You claim the name of Jesus, but you've never even been baptized, folks. There's only a few here. Most in this room, you have followed through in, 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 in the obedience of baptism. Your lives do show obedience and faith and honor to the Lord. But there are those in this church, and I'm not naming names, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, but the word is here. Listen to the words of Jesus. You may say, I will. You may say, I will go, Jesus. And you may actually serve in the church in different ways, but you have never given your heart to him one iota, not one inch, not one smidgen. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. The first son in this parable who disregarded his father's request. Now remember, notice here that this father did not ask them to go to the vineyard. It was not a question, mind you. It was a direct request. It was a direct imperative. Go to the vineyard. How many parents in this room get frustrated when you ask your children to take out the trash and they don't? Well, don't ask. Tell. Go take out the trash, son. Go make up your bed, young lady. Don't ask. Tell. You don't have to be mean about it. If you are mean about it, then we might need to talk to you as a church family. You don't need to be abusive about it, but you can be authoritative about it as this father is very authoritative in the parable, go to the vineyard. Not, um, would you like to go to the vineyard and work in the vineyard today, son? That's not what this father does. Parents in this room, some are squirming. Here's another side trail. It bothers me when I hear parents count to their children. You've got to the count of three. No. I better not get to one. I think that's the father here. <laughs> and the son's rebellion. Is, is this son, this first son, who did not, or, or the second son, the second son who did not change his mind to the father's will for him, he showed himself to be a false servant. The first son who said, no, I will not go. That was direct disobedience. That's a problem in itself. But he did change his mind and he went. The second son said, oh, I'll go. But then never changed his mind. We still have two issues here. But the conclusion here of this parable helps us understand more of what Jesus is saying. It really drives it home. Verses 31 through 32. Jesus looking at these uh, these chief priests, which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first one. Even hypocrites recognize the logic in that one. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward Change your minds and believe him. Remember, this is a segue from the challenge that Jesus was given in verses 23 through 27. The question that Jesus responded with in verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? That was Jesus's challenge back to them. And so the answer in verses 31 and 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. 
But these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these outcasts that are sitting at my feet in the temple listening to my instructions and my love for them, they are the ones who will go into the kingdom of heaven before you, chief priests. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. I mean, these verses show the true meaning of Jesus' parable to these hypocrites who controlled the Jerusalem temple. Their minds were made up. They declared an oath to God's service in the temple. All priests did, but they did not honor their oath. Yet they had, had, had they, I think Jesus' words here, had they changed their minds, particularly in the presence of Jesus himself as he was teaching and in the presence of Jesus' miracles, and don't forget his righteous purging of the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. Had they changed their minds after witnessing all these great things? I think Jesus would have granted them entrance into the kingdom of God right along the outcasts and the prostitutes and the tax collectors that they were demeaning. I mean, Hebrews chapter 7 actually helps us see this. If you want to flip over there, you can. Hebrews chapter 7. And if you're taking notes, Hebrews chapter 7 verses 18 through 21 is actually also citing Psalm 110, verse 4. Just one second. I did not bookmark Hebrews chapter 7. You may get there before me. Somebody say amen when you get to Hebrews 7. All right, so you got there before me. There you go. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. I mean, this passage confirms for us the proper priestly order. This was the section of Hebrews dealing with Jesus and the order of Melchizedek. And, and this passage confirms for us the proper priestly order of which God never changes his mind. Remember in this parable of the two sons, there was this question of changing their mind in contrast to God the Father who is constant and immutable and never changes his mind. To this, all, all who disregard His will have set their minds in opposition to God the Father. I mean, just as these chief priests in the temple had sworn an oath to the service in God's temple, I think we too, we can be challenged to consider our oath and service to Christ as His beloved redeemed. Look here in Matthew, or in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 18. The writer of Hebrews says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath. Verse 21, But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I mean, this is what Jesus was declaring in his parable in Matthew 21 to the wicked chief priest. It's almost as if Jesus is looking at these chief priests and he's almost saying, you wicked priests, you hypocrites. I mean, you've made yourselves princes when I made you servants. It's what he's saying. He's, looking, he's saying, in your distortion of my oath with you, God makes an oath with the priests who serve his temple and they distort it 
And because of that, it's like Jesus is looking at him and says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven because you have distorted my promise with you to be my oath keepers, my guardians of the house of God. But as for these prostitutes, he's like, he's, then he points to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the deaf and the blind and the lame who are standing around listening to him. Remember, even the little children who were there that they chastised, Jesus is like pointing to them, even they will all enter the kingdom of heaven before you ever have a chance. Why is this declared so boldly by our Lord? The last words in, in Matthew 21, verse 32, I think, are directed to the heart of these wicked princes of the temple. That's a good way to think about these chief priests. They had elevated themselves to the place of royalty. They were princes of the temple rather than servants of the temple. Look here in verse 32. Jesus says here, he says, and even when you saw it, saw the truth, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Change your minds. One of the sons in the parable changed his mind. And he did what his father asked him. But these chief priests were so arrogant and so boastful and so full of themselves, they were lost without hope because their minds would never change. But Jesus shows great wisdom here in this parable. I mean, think about this. God desires the changed minds of the humble and the repentant. If you're humble and you're repentant, you've changed your mind on something. We all begin life with a very selfish motive, don't we? Feed me, feed me, change my diaper, change my diaper. Babies aren't humble. They're sweet as gold, but they ain't, they're nothing, they're not humble. We teach them that, don't we? And then Jesus is looking here and he's saying, if you chief priests would just change your minds and believe in me, Jesus, the son of God himself, I'm standing and I'm working and I'm ministering right before your very eyes. And you're so blind to this and you're so deaf to this that your minds are made up. You're like the second son who boasted that you would obey, but your actions said that you won't. At least the first son in this parable, even though he was disobedient, he changed his mind. I mean, that their minds were made up here. These chief priests, were their minds were made up long before they saw Jesus. What, what did they worship? They worshiped themselves and the honor of public opinion more than they worshiped the one true God or his son. I mean, this, this conclusion here in verse 32 shows what is the main point of the whole parable. When Jesus Christ himself exposes, I want to use the word infamous hypocrisy because everybody knew it. He showed to them that they may no longer boast of being the ministers of God or hold out a pretended zeal for godliness because everybody knew the truth about them but themselves. I mean, their ambition and their pride and their cruelty to others and their greed and their covetousness were known by everyone. They wished to be honored as much different men, though. Oh, I'm a, I'm a holy, righteous person servant of the Lord. But in reality, they had made themselves their own real royalty. They had made themselves princes rather than servants. Yet just before, remember, right before this parable though, remember they attacked Jesus. They falsely alleged that they were anxious to know about where His authority came. Right? It's like they came up and they, they feigned 
humility. Jesus, where do you get your authority? Jesus saw right through them. They vain to be honest and faithful guardians of the law and of God's holy temple, but Jesus saw the truth, and in the, in the parables that follow, he reveals to them exactly their lies, and because they, pre, they preceded this gross imposition upon our Lord, Jesus himself, and upon God and men as well, Jesus himself, he rebukes these men in their arrogance and their pride. I mean, he shows that, they, here's what they showed. He, Jesus showed them that they were at the greatest distance from holiness than anyone could be, even though they pro- they boasted that they were closest to God than anybody. They, they were so far from deserving the elevation that Jesus granted even the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. They were the farthest away from God's holiness that anyone could be. I mean, the imagery is clear here in this parable. I mean, Jesus tells these men that it is as if a son were to promise obedience to his father, but afterwards to deceive him. But remember, just as the first son disregarded his father's wishes, remember that disregard was not excused. So too the sins of these tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners that Jesus elevates here, those sins aren't excused either. That's why they needed a Savior. That's why they needed His blood. It is this change of mind that endears the sinners of the, to the grace of the Father. The change of mind is what, the, what God the Father is looking for in the humble. And that's where His grace is poured out. Grace is not overlooking or whitewashing sin. I'll say that again. The grace that Jesus ushers in The grace of the Father in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ is not overlooking or whitewashing sin. But the change of mind of the sinner is the result of repentance, which leads to the outpouring of grace. I mean, just as the second son, he disregarded what his father wanted. I mean, the disregard is shown through both his words and his actions. And this disregard made him unworthy of his father's will. I mean, so too the ungodliness of these priests was worse than even the debauchery of the prostitute. And that's the point of the parable. Jesus Christ, he can deal with the most vile sin. He's okay with that. He'll deal with it. What he will not deal with is the arrogance of a prideful heart that will not change, no matter how much the Holy Spirit calls and prods and pulls, no matter how much the truth is exposed, no matter how much the truth is spoken and heard, if the heart refuses to change and continues in arrogance and rebellion and lies to the Father in heaven, that heart is already condemned and will never be elevated to the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is teaching this to arrogant, prideful men who had elevated themselves. They actually took what God had established and distorted it. Remember, that's the definition of sin distortion of what is right and true and good. And these chief priests had done far beyond any hope of redemption. 
But if they had just changed their mind, then there's hope that Jesus can forgive them and God's grace can be poured upon them. This morning, we're going to transition now into a time of worship at the Lord's table. And guests who are here, you are welcome to join us in this act of communion, this act of worship. And the men who are going to be distributing the elements, if you'll come on forward and be ready. But I will ask, if you're a guest here with us this morning, if you are not a baptized, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I ask that you not participate. Again, not as, as any condemnation, but just out of respect. I want to go even further. If you're in this room and you say, well, I gave my heart to Jesus. But you're really not. I ask you not participate today until we can talk and pray or you can deal with the Lord and he can deal with you. This is a this is a time. This is an act of worship that is given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ for those who are redeemed and bought by the blood who obey in believers' baptism as well. You cannot pick and choose, I'll do communion, but I won't do baptism. I've never figured out that logic. You can't come to the Lord's table, but then refuse baptism. They both go together. They are both ordinances of the church. They are both commands of our Lord. You don't pick and choose which commands to obey. But if you are right in right standing with the Lord this morning, and not, honestly, let's just, none of us are. But the, but the attitude of humility and repentance, if that is the norm in your life at this moment, you are welcome to join us at the table. Amen. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I mean, these are direct words here from the Apostle Paul at this time. So as the elements are being distributed, as the music is played, let me encourage you to use this time for meditation and prayer. I pray that before today you've already spent time in prayer and meditation preparing for this day. But use this moment to further reflection and prayer. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, confess it. If there's someone that you have a, a dispute with, resolve it. This is a time to thank the Lord for what He has given us. Let me pray. Father God Almighty, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for this gift of Communion at the Lord's table, worship at the Lord's table, remembering the sacrifice of our, of your son Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. His blood was spilled, his body was broken, all for our sin so that it would be atoned for. And so God, I pray at this hour, as we worship together in communion together, I pray Lord that this would be a time that brings you glory as we worship in humility and remembrance. Please bless these elements. Please bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.